your mic adjusted? I think one did. All right. Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. This is a recovery podcast where we talk to various people from all walks of life about recovery, recovery from substances, recovery from alcoholism, from mental health issues that have consumed them. And uh, today's, I have a very special guest today. His name is Sean O'Grady. He's a good old friend. Known Sean for a few years now. Um, hi, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. Bej, thank you for having me. We've been talking about having you come on here for quite some time now. I'm super excited for what you're doing, and I'm always excited to talk about myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll get into lots of that because uh, I want to hear all about you. I, there's minimal things I know about you. I mean, obviously, we have a friendship, and I've known you for quite some time. I know that you work in uh, filming and things like that, so we, we'll talk about that later. But um, let's let's just start from the past, from the beginning, like where you were born. Um, where were you born? Uh, I was born in Silver Spring, Maryland mm -hmm. at Holy Cross Hospital on February 27th, 1982. I'm a Pisces. Okay, nice. And uh, siblings? Yeah, I got an older brother who's also in recovery. He's one of us. God bless him. He was the uh, one of the lighthouses in my life that helped me get to where I wanted to be mm -hmm. or, and I didn't know where I needed to be. And uh, I have a younger half-sister. And those are my siblings. Nice. And your upbringing in Maryland, how was that? You know, it's great. Like, there's, I, I'm such like a gem. I'm, I'm a Pisces, but I'm a Gemini. I see things like so both ways, right? Like, on the surface, it was, I know later now, like how lucky and blessed I was and privileged. And, you know, I never wanted really for anything other than, you know, material things that other people like, you know, had that I didn't. But, you know, I had clothes on my back. I had air conditioning. I had a loving mother and I had, you know, all of my Maslow hierarchy of needs were totally met. Right. But below the surface, there was always something like super lacking. Right. It was a good childhood in a lot of respects, like very stranger things with like, you know, bikes, latchkey kid, getting into mischief, tree houses, like all that really fun kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But and sports and, you know, church activities, whatever, whatever. But, you know, just to really get into it, you know, I always knew there was something wrong with me, like from an early age. And it, for me, like the way I like to kind of start my story is like, you know, my parents divorced. I think I was two. My mom might want to fact check if she's listening, but I think I was two. And um, sure, like divorce became a lot more prevalent as we get older and all that. But I felt like an other because all my friends had parents. You know what I mean? And I had a mom who was doing both roles mm -hmm. and my dad wasn't a big part of my life. And I could go further on that, but I'm going to not, but just kind of say that, you know, he, he may have tried, but he was also, he's also one of us. And that definitely hurt that relationship and, you know, legally and, uh, you know, parent in a parent kind of sense. And my mom, you know, definitely took measures to, you know, not have him as part of my life and my brother's life. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, having that kind of dominant male influence, you know, really affected me um, psychologically and, and just personally. So my grandparents on my mother's side that loves us very much and they helped raise us. And, um, and that's a period at the end of that sentence. <laughs> so, um, but also just getting uh about how i felt so different is you know i was a huge kid man like i mean you remember how when i first met you i was like 300 plus pounds mm -hmm. and now i'm this adonis <laughs> you see, well, what, what do you weigh right now because you certainly don't look like you did when i first i'm met like you. 190 190 when i met you was like six years ago 
it was a little it was a little over six years ago just about yeah because, it was just about yeah and we'll get to that point later but um yep. yeah so i was a big kid so i felt like another and one thing that i always wanted you know i always wanted love man like i mean i've always loved girls man like ever, I, my first crush like i was probably five mm -hmm. you know on the babysitter and i'm not gonna say her name <laughs> you know and then the girl in montessori and and then to not receive that validation back and i'm not blaming women at all it's just it's me mm -hmm. um made me feel like another mm -hmm. so you have this weight problem you have the lack of validation from the opposite sex you have a predilection to alcoholism that runs in the family and you have a broken home that sounds like a lovely recipe for an alcoholic birthday cake it's like totally formating it's just there it's Brewing. bubbly yeah, yeah it's like it's like the starter yeast you know yeah. for like yeah. the worst bread ever so that's that's what it was like man and you know a lot of people talk about their first drink and i'm from the generation where you know parents used to give kids wine which i don't think is a big deal you know the euros do it why not right but and also like you know whiskey in the gums if you're crying as a kid so i had my first drink you know early single digits i don't know when yeah and you know my dad i don't fault him at all but like you know a lot of parents give their kids like yeah try a sip a of little beer. If I become a parent, I don't know if I'll do that, knowing what I know now, and I don't blame parents for doing that. I, yeah. You know, I, I think it's fine, and it was also a different age then, right? So I had my very first drink very early. Um, but then I didn't try to get drunk mm -hmm. until I was probably around, I think I was 13 or 14, you know, when my brother was in high school and I was around eighth grade. Right. I left um, the school I was at. I was in Catholic private school up until seventh grade and uh, made the jump to public school in eighth grade, which was, you know, one of the best decisions that happened to me. And that's the first time I smoked weed. And that's the first time, like, I probably really started to drink. And I was hanging out with older kids, mainly my brother's friends, and doing... How much older than you, I see? He's two years and one month. Gotcha. Yeah. So just enough, right? You know, it's a good age that, you know, he's 43. And I can, like, you know, kind of gauge where I'm headed, hopefully, and hopefully not. But <laughs> so that's when things started to, you know, kind of change. Um and I started to go down that path. And then high school, it's not like I, I even wanted to drink. A lot of people, you know, we've heard in rooms for years, like, oh, I had that first drink and I arrived. Mm -hmm. I was like, motherfucker, I was already there. I hope I can cuss. Sorry. You can totally cuss. <laughs> okay, thank God. I don't mind at all. Um, like, I was already there. I can't really, like, I think in hindsight, I can kind of be like, oh, maybe I did arrive, you know? But, like, when I was doing it then, you know what it did, actually, is it gave me an excuse to not kind of pursue the opposite sex because mm -hmm. of my focus now was concerned on drinking. So I didn't feel um, disenfranchised mm -hmm. and I didn't, it validated me to be a wallflower and to withdraw from trying to pursue a lady because of the fear of mm -hmm. rejection. And that's why I went inward with the drinking. Sure. I was like a party animal and like, I definitely made inappropriate advances. Like, you know, I'm not here to absolve myself by any means. Sure. But those things were very prevalent and um, all the way through, you know, my entire career of drinking and using. And for me, the drinking went off the rails super early, you know, around, like, how old? like 15, 15. So first like drinks I had, you know, warm beers in a hockey bag in the woods, you know, it was fine for a few months, you know, mad dog 2020s, you know, it was fine for aftershock, oh my God. you know, for like a few months. Yeah. Like Carrie, what you know about that mad dog? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that, that Boone's Farm and those OEs, Boone's baby, and, and all that, right? So I could I could drink and feel drunk. Mm -hmm. 
But then it got to a point where I would get drunk and not be able to control myself. Sure. Early, 15. And then I would get drunk and start blacking out. 16. Mm -hmm. That guy feels me. Sure. And it, as soon as that happened, it was off. You know, man, like I didn't know what was happening. Oh, and then I started vomiting. So it was like the vomiting and then the blacking out. It sure. was like this one, two, three, four kind of a situation. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, then I was just in it, you know, and I was smoking weed and I was doing other, you know, pharmaceuticals and, you know, hallucinogenics and stuff, you know, at that age. How old were you when you got into hallucinogenics? Uh, I probably started taking mushrooms probably at 16 or 17. And what was the purpose of even trying those? Was it because friends were doing it? The Great Escape? Was it curiosity? Curiosity, somebody, friends, days and confused. Somebody, you know? somebody just happened to have some. You yeah. heard about it, and you're like, "Let's try some of this yeah. too." I mean, that was really it, man. It's like I never really had, like, it was really curious, but like a lot of this also was really rooted in fear. Like, sure, I didn't want to really do a lot of this stuff. I don't think a lot of kids do. I don't you know, think a lot of kids do at first, but obviously to, in, right? to, to be able to fit in. And, and I didn't want to be an outlier. Like I like actually being a contrarian later. Sure. But being a contrarian in like high school or like, you know, college, like that's right. really different. And I just didn't want to be left behind, man. Like, and, and that's also just part of my story is like fear of being left behind or being alone. And like, I mean, there's a lot I could keep going on. I understand completely. On, but, but yeah, no, it's like, I didn't even want to do it. I didn't want to get into trouble. Like I did drugs and drank and got into trouble by proxy, mm -hmm. essentially. And I'm not absolving myself from my responsibilities or accountability. I did plenty of dumb, bad shit. But like, when I look back, like I remember doing those things out of fear and fear of not fitting in. And it not really even from pressure from my friend groups, like, oh, do it or you're a pussy. It was, it all started like here. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that obviously progressed through college, you know, and I got my first DUI when I was 18 and, um, you know, went into college with that and unsupervised one year unsupervised provision. And mm -hmm. I mean, I can talk about drunk logs and crazy shit that happened to me, but basically I did, I got two more DUIs. So three total, I should have. All as an adult, right? Oh yeah. 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 I got my next one at like 28 and then my last one at 35. And um, I should have like 300 recorded you know i've crashed so many cars and talked my way out of so many like plus other instances that didn't involve vehicles i mean i won't even get into the personal injuries that happened. were you ever incarcerated as a result of any of these duis or drunk driving by the grace of god no okay and then um throughout the time i mean obviously if you were getting duis drinking were you doing drugs during this time too habitual marijuana smoker every single day uh -huh. every single day and then like with pills or coke or I mean, I dabbled in oxys, you know, not a lot because I didn't like the way they made me feel, you know, and I almost killed myself actually once when I drank too much and took those mm -hmm. same as Xanax and fucking Percocets. Like I would never like really like it wouldn't be a Friday at night. I'm like, oh, I need perks or I need Vicodins or oxys. It Once again, by proxy. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're around. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it till it's done. Right. Same with Thanksgiving dinner. I load up the plate, fucking eat it all until it's done, whether or not I'm full or too drunk or anything. This is what I do because I'm an alcoholic. I have mm -hmm. an impulsive mind to finish stuff and not in a positive way. Right. So, but the one thing I did seek out was always marijuana, always alcohol. And that's why I identify as an alcoholic because sure, I did a bunch of cocaine, but I did it after I drank a bunch of whiskey. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And sure, I used to bang Ritalins and Adderalls, but 
It was so I could keep drinking. When you say bang Ritalins and Adderalls, were you snorting them? Yeah. Were they prescribed? No. So <laughs> during that time, these were street bought? Like, Did you know somebody that had a prescription? How were you getting them? A lot of it was like, you know, under the guise of college and like exams, right? Yes. You know, it's like, oh, I need to stay up all night. Well, I also have a very slow metabolism. Okay. If you remember, I was a very big child. Right. So the best way to get it into your system quicker mm -hmm. is to snort it. Right. So I'm like, well, let me just eliminate this problem this way. And I'm going to snort it and get right to the problem. Okay. Okay. So. And then when you got into Adderall, did it become other stimulants like more heavy street drugs? I mean, that probably paved the way for cocaine. I mean, I did enjoy the process. I was like, waiting for that. Oh, man. I love yeah. the process of chopping it up and and all that. Sorry to trigger people. but No, it, was, it, it is a total process. I love it. I there's, love it. There's a lot to it. Yeah. Like it becomes, you know. The ritual. You know, I love the total ritual. Total ritual. The same way I love the ritual of making coffee, you know, now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, like this wasn't also, I, I got to say, like, I'm, this is not like an everyday thing I'm doing. Mm -hmm. This is like once every other time, but I have to consider it as part of my addiction because it is something I did do recreationally for a sustained period. It's not like I woke up and I'm like, I need Adderall today or I need cocaine today. Yeah. Right. It like, was recreational. It was purely recreational. And, you know, I'm not also absolving myself from, you know, my, what I was doing, but I just want to be clear that like, this is not something I did every single day or sought out every single day. It was always my proxy because of alcohol, in mm -hmm. my opinion. Right. Okay. So then, um, I mean, obviously between these times of getting the DUIs, you were still functioning in everyday life. You were somewhat, somewhat. So you were working or you going to school, school then work. Yeah, no. I, so I graduated in four years by the grace of God and almost double majored and had a bunch of minors and, um, did that. And, uh, I, I've always been like a freelancer. I've never really held like a traditional job job yeah. um, post-college. I, I have worked in the service industry on and off for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So if you want to consider that a job job, then great, let's do that. But like professionally, I've never worked for like, an, you know, an agency or like a, a broadcast network or, you know, or anything like that. I've done contracts, mm -hmm. but I've never been like, yo, you're on salary. Oh, there's a 401k and a dental plan and all that's never got any of that. Never, not once. Always yeah. freelancing. So as soon as I got back from college, um, my grandmother helped and my mom helped me buy a camera. And I started, I've always been into music and culture, especially where I'm from in the Washington, D.C. area, where we have a huge contribution to the arts that a lot of people don't really talk about, whether it be hardcore music because of Ian McKay and Fugazi and Henry Rollins because of Black Flag. But also like the black community is championed go-go and jazz um, in the DC area. And there's been a lot of graffiti writers from there. And there's a lot of culture that I really wanted to tap on. And one of the main vanguards of that was hip hop. Why mm -hmm. hasn't there been somebody from the DC area that has been the Jay-Z from like New York? Like a top hip hop artist. Like, like a top person. And this is pre Wale, like before Wale became kind of like that poster child. So I set myself out in kind of discovering this and I wanted to make a documentary. So I met all of these people from New York and Richmond and Boston and DC. And, and I was just going around shooting shows and freestyle ciphers and just every night of the week, just shooting, just culminating just footage on mini DV tapes. And I met all these people that were really instrumental and in kind of shaping my life later. And some of the situations I was able to get myself in, like kind of like professionally, but like I wasn't making like really any money, you know, doing this, I was doing this as 
they would say, you know, for Dolo, I was going on the strength of this, like doing this for myself. Mm -hmm. And eventually that led into like other opportunities where I started working for a company called Vimby Video in My Backyard, which were located in LA. And they were kind of like a pre-Vice before Vice, you know, became um, like a big media conglomerate where we were doing like lifestyle, three to five minute mini doc lifestyle pieces on like skaters and graffiti artists and fashion lines and events and musicians. And I was kind of like their East Coast kind of dude doing that, you know, for them in the DC, Baltimore, New York, Miami, I was doing stuff all over the place for them. And it was a cool little way. Sounds fun. It was fun. It didn't pay shit, but you know, it was a lot of fun. And, and I would supplement that with other you know, like restaurant jobs or like, you know, I lived in my mom's basement for a really long time and didn't really want to. And, you know, was drinking down there a lot and smoking and whatever. But, you know, I, I'm still friends with a lot of these guys today. They're still in L.A., you know, right. like a lot of those contractors. And we even collaborate together, uh, you know, all these years later. You met one of them. You met Ryan. Right. Ryan was one of them. Uh, shout out to Ryan Heilman and uh, Joe Heilman. But um yeah. So anyway, I mean, I could keep going down that path, but basically what led me into recovery and led me into drinking was the third DUI. And and that was when? Six years ago? It was May 6th, 2017. Okay. So I met you, I believe in 2017, you had, we were going to shoot a documentary. Probably September. It was probably like around September, October. Yeah. We were going to shoot a documentary on body brokering. Oh, I know. With yeah. Ryan and Joe. With they Ryan were a part of it. Yeah. Right. right. It didn't ever take fruition but mm -hmm. i i remember you and i vibed to the i, I just liked when you say dc you have me at dc yeah like yeah, I, I, know. I love dc i love the dmv states i have a lot of friends out there and i'm always there but I, also just something about you like i thought i think this guy needs to be my friend and we just kind of vibed and became each other's friends and um i remember like you started to embrace recovery and then we we stayed in each other's lives because we we're both living in la for a while and then we just carried on this friendship. So you got that third DUI. And why why did you finally make a decision after the other two DUIs? You didn't make a decision to be on the path of recovery. The other two on paper, by the way. Um, the other two what? On paper. On paper. Yeah, that I got caught for. I think it's really kind of important to start where it all, where I, I, I watched it all, the dominoes start to fall, right? Right. So I had been grateful enough to start actually working a short-term contract with an agency with a mm -hmm. big ad agency in the DC area. And it was going great. Right. Uh, it, it, all humility aside, I, I was kind of killing it for right. that, like as a contractor. And it was going so well that they asked me, I was doing like kind of like spot gigs for them, you know, for the beginning of that year up until the DUI. And then they were like, okay, um, I'm sorry, this is the year before, this is in 2016. So in 2016, I had started doing some work with them. It was going very well. And mm -hmm. then they had asked me, to do a short-term contract to work on a huge campaign for WMATA, which is the Washington Metropolitan Transit Authority, uh, which is the Metro. Mm -hmm. that, and I was doing their Back to Good campaign, was running a bunch of assets and a bunch of just video stuff like surrounding the campaign. It was going very, very well. And then um, when I finished the contract early and under budget, there was discussions about me coming on as long-term. And this was kind of like my flag in the sand. If, if I can get this to work, yeah, then I will be in a place I want to be doing creative work and I can make this happen in DC and stop fledgling and just spraying and praying with gigs I'm doing and whatever. And I can have insurance taken care of and I can finally start to make a life for myself. Right. And then I find out that that was not going to happen. 
they dodged my phone calls for like a month. And then they told me that like, no, we're just not going to honor this. And I said, wow, that's awesome. Great. Now I am screwed because it's October now and DC, you know, production can be very seasonal in a lot of ways. And I was at the end of the season and the positions that I were getting was not paying top dollar, you know, like a lot of stuff that happens in the area. Creative gets flown in from LA and Atlanta and New York and Miami. They find like, you know, local crew, like boots on the ground, grips, um, production assistants, maybe people that can do catering, mm-hmm. maybe some second unit stuff, which will be, you know, other, you know, carry units and stuff. But I'm not getting those gigs. Like I'm, I'm basically relegated to production assistant, which could be like $150 for a 16 hour day or like 250. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting a couple here and there. Bottom line is I knew I needed a, a job or two and I needed to get back to the service industry because that's the only way I could make money. Mm-hmm. In DC, there's plenty of service industry jobs because there's a gang of you know restaurants because of the restaurant boom that happened there around 2010, and it's still proliferating and, and et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. I was extremely apprehensive about doing this because I know who I was and I knew what I was doing, and I just knew it was going to be bad, but I knew I needed money. Yeah. So I got two jobs at one restaurant and one bar directly across the street from my house. You know, just geographically convenient to who I was and what I was doing. And this was all under the auspices of me saving money to eventually move to Los Angeles. But before moving to Los Angeles is getting into a 30 day program because I knew I needed help and I, but I didn't know how much or what that work would entail. Mm -hmm. But under my best idea, it was like, okay, I need to not go to LA with this problem. I need to fix this. Yeah, got to get cleaned up. I got to get cleaned up in 30 days and brand new shirt. I'll be good to go. Yeah. Right. So things are going, going January, February, March, April, May. And I get a DUI. And after I get let out of jail, I go straight back to the bar, you know, just classic alcoholic behavior. Yeah. So for the next month or so, you know, I am trying to figure out what to do. My lawyer is like, okay, well, you can do Cormac Institute or whatever and do an outpatient. I'm like, that's not going to work. Like, I know myself. I was like, that is just not going to work because it's not what I need. And he goes, well, you can go to Martin's Ashley. And I'm like, also too close to home. I can't like, I can't be around this area. I need to get out. Like there's too much pain and trauma and ghosts of my past here. And I knew I needed to be in California. So I called up somebody that I know that had worked in treatment, who you also know. It's how I met you. Yes. And I'm not going to say her name because it's just in case. But I called her and I asked for help. And she said, I'll make some calls. And within a week, she had found a place for me. And I bought a ticket. And uh, it's worth noting, I got fired from the one job for showing up hammered. And then the other job, I was able to retain and show up enough and do my job. And it was cool that. I gave them at least a month or so heads up that I knew I was going to be on the out. So I didn't like, you know, dick them over mm-hmm. when I finally had to leave. So um, I got that call and I booked that ticket and um, I packed two bags and paid two months rent. And I left June 25th, 2017 and headed to Orange County. And my sober day is June 26th because I smoked a joint on my porch. So that's not sober. <laughs> I was being real, bro. I know. I was and being you real. just took six years. And I just took six years and it just feels took six years. I took a cake yesterday, which is incredible. I love it. At the beach meeting that I've been trying to get you to come. I'm going to go to that beach meeting. <laughs> okay. I, will, I plan on going. I was actually speaking 
in Venice over the weekend. Oh, cool. Yeah, at a smaller meeting. Um, okay, so so life is good now. I mean, life is, as they say in the book, like the cash and prizes, man. I mean, it's like, it's beyond my wildest dreams. There's something that really stood out to me about you, and I want to talk about this um, before we wrap up. There's um, you, obviously, when I met you, you as you said, you weighed a lot more. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, I, and I always had a lot of issues with my weight growing up, and um, I was kind of yo-yo-ish. Like yeah, I, yeah, sure. Like when you lose a bunch of weight, you feel really good about yourself. You feel better because you're eating better because you're working out and all that stuff. But then um, some people call it eating alcoholically. Like I do it I, still. You know, I when I just do it, I'm binging, right? Yeah. And so the weight comes back on and then we experience a lot of guilt and all that. But here's something that stood out about me that really I loved about you a lot is there was a place that we congregate for 12-step type mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, and it was in LA and it was right before the pandemic. And I remember calling you and meeting with you and you kept insisting that if you're going to come, like I shouldn't pick you up in the car. And I would tell you like, Oh my God. I knew wow. you weren't, you didn't drive. Yeah. And I was like, why? Like, why not? You know, because I just like to walk. And I remember when I saw you, like we, we met at this coffee shop, you showed up. I'm like, who the fuck are you? Like, I'm like, who is this guy? Moore Park. It, it was uh, actually, it was Colfax. Colfax. Yeah. 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 At and the I coffee remember, shop on the corner. Yeah. I remember yeah. seeing you. I was like, dude, you lost a lot of weight. And you're, you're all, yeah, this is just from walking. Yeah. And then I, I admire that. Like I, I actually did that myself many years ago. I think sometimes when people get sober, they start to eat their feelings a lot. And um, that's what I did. Yeah. That's how I ballooned 50 pounds up when I moved out here. Sure. I and ate my feelings. For a guy like me that was a major, I mean, I did, I was a polysubstance abuser, but um, meth and uh, cocaine stimulants were my get down towards the end for, sure. for a long time. And so when I got off of that, like, I was eating a lot, like sure. not really thinking. I was basically replacing the food with the drugs and alcohol. I did the same. And um, and I and I walked. I remember just like thinking, I don't like the way I look anymore. I don't like the way I feel. So I started doing a lot of walking, and sure enough, I walked a lot of weight off. Plus, Maybe. I drank a lot of water and I ate better. Um, but how does it feel right now? Like, a, as far as for your own sake, for your for your esteem, like your self-esteem, uh, as far as being a person that not only had a, a drinking and using problem, but also uh, had the insecurities that can come with um, having a lot of weight and like being disciplined in the way that you uh, eat and take care of yourself now. How does it feel to just, you know, be in these types of spirits as far as a person that's very thin? You're thinner than me now. <laughs> For a guy that was in his um, 300 pounds. To, I was 330. Uh, in October 2017. And the simplest answer I can kind of give you was, is this, and I've said this before, and I say it in a lot of meetings, and I say it every year, thank God, when I get a chip, um, is I truly feel like I've jumped through a wormhole and I live in a different shunk, in a different parallel universe. And everybody wants to talk metaverse and all this multiverse shit now, but like, no, like I'm the OG in that. Like I feel I <laughs> jump through a wormhole and I get to live this other doppelganger like it doesn't feel it's real a different guy it's different like that's how i feel like i know where i'm living in a simulation because, yeah. <laughs> because i blinked and all of a sudden i became and i'm not perfect i say this with all the humility but i became the person i always hoped i could be i love that you know what i'm saying are you like, married yet no hence, hence the new clotta ring tattoo that okay. means i'm looking <laughs> and then when you when you get married uh, you turn it inward. So I feel I'll just get a band to cover it. And that means the shop is closed. I understand. 
But it, 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 but Pej, like, I mean, sobriety, it's still, it doesn't feel real. The fact that I don't have to like make an amends every single day or look for my credit cards or clean up broken glass and just metaphorically and, and, you know, and, and figuratively, and I can wear a size medium t-shirt. Like, dude, I've worn a size medium t-shirt since I was like five <laughs> or like seven. You know what I mean? Like, right it things just don't seem real and it's also kind of weird that like i don't get the reaction that i still would love to get from like the opposite sex or other people because they don't know what i used to be like Hmm. i get that from you because you know i get that from family because they know i get that from friends i grew up with because they know Mm -hmm. and i love that and it's i it warms my heart and i'm super grateful every single day but I, i wish people that's why I love doing these things. So people can know like how different it was, but also what can happen if you just have some humility and some accountability and some willingness, you can change your life. Absolutely. You can change your life, dude. I know, I know how fucking lucky I am, dude. Like I am so, we are so lucky, dude. The fail rate, not even for, for dieting, for recovery Mm -hmm. is like, and these are not grossly exaggerated numbers. You can probably quote it better than me. Like 95%. Right. Probably. You are correct. That's, we are miracles, like miracles. And the fact that I got five miracles in less than three years, Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel real, dude. I'm just waiting to get woken up in like Neo in the matrix. It's like, no, you're in a, you're in a tube. <laughs> well, if I was a psychic, I would tell you, I feel like there's good things on the horizon for you. God is preparing the perfect one for you. I And, and you know what, when you feel good about yourself, manifestations come within, I think within time, something beautiful is going to happen. It's already happening. It's, it's already something here, beautiful man. is already happening for you. You just don't know. It. You don't know. You, you, the, the relationship with yourself has to happen first before you can go and have it with somebody else. And now I'm working on that, man. And like, you know, I don't know how far you get deep in the recovery stuff too, but like, you know, we talked about it and I learned about actually at that meeting at Colfax, we Mm -hmm. talked about emotional sobriety. I met a friend that you were friends with. Mm -hmm. And we, I remember we sat in like the front row and you hadn't seen him in a while. And he was talking about emotional sobriety. Right. And that to me is what I've been working on. And it's what I'm doing here. I'm leaving here to go to therapy to work on my emotional sobriety. Right. And it's taken me a long time to really love myself in, because I still look down. I'm like, Oh, you're still fat. You know what I mean? But like, listen, I want you to know something. I think that with most people that have body dysmorphia, which I think body dysmorphia comes from in so many different ways, shapes and forms. Right. Um, even friends that I have that are gym rats that are mm. in there all the time. Some of them are doing it all natural. Some of them, do it with some TRT, some of it actually do it with steroids to each their own, whatever you want to do, however you get down. But even them, like when they're looking at themselves in the mirror, I mean, all it takes is for somebody to say, it looks like your six pack isn't a six pack today. And that will fucking debilitate their thought process for like a week or three, right? They'll go work out harder because they're so self-conscious about the outer appearance. So I understand that. But, um, But I know you got a lot of heart. You're a good guy. Other, I mean, outside the fact that you're very well spoken, very brilliant in the way that you carry yourself, I, I've always valued my friendship with you because you're a man that seems like he's here to stay. Like you like your sobriety. Like what are you doing to stay sober? Talk about that because I Love know to. I know you're going to where you have to go after this. No, I got time though. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm I'll talk about myself all day, baby. No, like no, I said. Let's, talk about, let's talk about the recovery. Like what are you yeah. doing to stay sober and why? Hundred percent, dude. Um, 
Well, because I don't, so fear is what got me here. And fear is actually what keeps me here because the fear of losing what I have is so real to me. Like going back, like I still have using dreams. Mm. And when I wake up and it's not real, like I thank God, I'm like, Jesus, dude, I can't believe like that felt so real, you know, and I just don't want to go back to that person. What do you think the using dreams are about? Why do those happen? Maybe it's just God shots to keep it fresh. You know what I'm saying? Like they don't happen every night, but like okay, they, well, they happen. They, yeah. they happen for most people that had an addiction or alcoholism. Yeah. It still happens. Sometimes they're violent, you know, and sometimes they're just passive. Like, oh, I smoked weed. It's like, shit, do I smoke weed? No, I didn't smoke weed. Okay, good. Um, but what I do though to to maintain that like healthy level of fear and and um and all that stuff though is you know, I, I regularly attend meetings. It's all the cliche stuff that hopefully your listeners have heard, but is living proof as to why it works. Right. You go to meetings, get a sponsor, get somebody that has a working knowledge of the 12 steps, the big book, and can walk you through them. Mm -hmm. Even if you've done them, do it again with that person. Mm -hmm. um, raise your hand, contribute to the group. That's all you have to do. You don't have to take a commitment, but at least add you know, uh, a validation to a speaker that's sharing, or maybe your interpretation of you know step seven or whatever it may be. Like add value to your group. Right. Um, so I regularly attend meetings, um, fellowship, you know, is important. I don't like call three guys a day every day, you know, but I, I got like, you know, six to 12 people that I like to talk with and mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give them a ring and they're in various levels of sobriety and of various parts of the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, I do virtuals cause I'm on the road so much, uh, self-admittedly, I'm not the guy that's in a city and I'm like, I'm going to go check out this meeting right here. Usually by that time I'm jet lagged and I have an early call time and I got to just get some sleep or get a good meal in me so I can show up hundred percent the next day. But I do a lot of virtuals. I've been trying to get back into more in-persons, especially when I'm home, uh, whether it be here or in Maryland. Sure. Um, I've been listening to a lot of sober podcasts just to help me kind of stay on the beam, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I, um, and then, yeah, emotional sobriety is super important. You know, I've been really looking at uh, three, six, seven, and 11 and 12, obviously those steps, those are, those are my kind of my maintenance steps these days. You know, I say the third step prayer when I wake up mm. and then I go, I pray for, you know, knowledge of his will instead of my own, you know, just like put me in step with you today. Right. I pray for character defects. That's what I've been working on about nine to 10 months, you know, really just thinking about them and asking them to be, you know, mitigated as much as possible. Um, a big hole in my program was 11. Sure. I did one half of 11. I did the first one. I didn't do the second one mm. and that was meditation. So I've been really trying to work on I meditation. Hear this stuff and I'm thinking, do you do it enough? <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, the great thing I do. So my home group and the virtual home group that I do is their meditation meetings. So mm -hmm. Monday is 20, mm -hmm. Tuesday is five, Wednesday is 12 and then five, five, five. 20s oh, a lot. 20s a lot when you're sitting in your computer chair. At home. At home. Oh, and it's virtual. And when you go to the it's it's uh it's it's in Los Feliz. You've been there. You've been to that room with I like you that went one. once. I remember it. Place of fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh so Monday's there, it's 20, and that that's there's a different energy. That's where I was. When when it's a 20, my brain starts going in different directions. It's like, can that guy stop moving that chair? Can oh my god, stop, like yeah. Cough some more, why don't you? Like, yeah, turn leave, your fucking phone off, bro. Yeah, like how it's do you totally interrupting my process? It's 2023. How do you not have this on silent, dude? My phone's on do not disturb 20 feet away. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> it's also because I've been working on live sets where like we're running sound and you don't want to be that guy where your phone goes off, right? But, right. 
But uh, no, the uh, the the step eleven has been crucial, and I'm not, I, you know I don't do it every day, but I did log in today to do the twenty minutes to talk with step eleven to listen to Rob share, and um, and that's important. And I doing things that are important for your physical being also transform into your spiritual being, but also into your sober being. So you know, exercise for me is important. Um, ingesting healthy media. And things like that is important too. I like a lot of wild shit. You know, I love Wu Tang. You know, I love horror movies. But it's like you can't just live on, live on a diet of that stuff, right? right? You can't go down doom scrolling on Twitter about the state of the world and AI replacing my creative job, right? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> These are all things that I do. I am not giving mandates doom to your viewers. Yeah. That is awesome. Doom scrolling, bro. Like I learned that. Yeah, dude, in the pandemic, dude, compare and despair, uh, FOMO, those are big things for me, man. So, like, I can't be on Instagram. I can't be on socials. I can't look at what the administration did. just join Threads last week? Fuck no. <laughs> I can't do Like, dude, I've been on Twitter since like 2009. Like, you Threads know what I mean? Threads is Mark Zuckerberg's new. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. He's a living piece of AI. I don't care. Like, <laughs> I like that. So I, I really, you know, eating healthy, drinking tons of water, getting a good night's sleep, reading books consistently, calling friends, tell them you love them. Mm -hmm. Oh, game changer. Hugging your friends when you see them. Game changer. Hey, Having, you know, after this, we're going to hug. Uh, damn, I'm going to yeah. hug everyone in this room after this. Yeah. And then we might even lock hands and interlock fingers. Shout out to Nathan <laughs> Dillon. Um, <laughs> do a little Lord's Prayer. Like and now I say all this with, with tons of humility. Like I don't do this every single day. I try. I aim for the perfection. It's just, you know, we look at, I tell this in film too. It's like, you know, we look at the script, we look at the creative. It's like we aim for 100%. But if we can hit 70, 75, then that's an A plus because of all of the challenges and things that we can't control around us. Right. right. So every day I try to run you know, six miles, seven miles. I try to meditate for 20 minutes. I try to drink all of this water. I try to eat one healthy meal. I try to pray in the morning. I try to not yell at somebody on the phone or get mad on an email or whatever. You know what I mean? And some days I'm on the beam and some days I'm off. But I think all those things are super important for me to hopefully show up to life and perform at the highest level as possible because that's why I came here. I came to LA and I got clean, you know, I wanted to get clean before coming. And then I got clean, you know, in Orange County before going because I needed to be 100% of who I needed to be to survive in that jungle. And that's why I needed to get clean. I needed to lose the weight and I needed to just see, I needed to put myself through it the best to see if I could withstand it. And thank God, you know, five, it's five years in LA, six years in California, you know, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be out here, but you know, my work here, I don't think is done yet. And, um, and I'm just super grateful for all the experience that I had. And if I had to pack up and leave tomorrow, like I have zero regrets and that's super important. I love that. I mean, as always, you inspire me. I, I want you to know the topic for today was my message, my message. And truly you give a lot of hope to a lot of people. I mean, I think uh, there's a lot of people that have those insecurities growing up, whether it's because of weight or a certain way that they feel or think or think that they look or people have let them know that they look a certain way because they don't already know as if they don't already know. So the insecurities that can build up and the reasons that we might use or drink over it, 
let alone all the other stuff that happens in our lives that, you know, the traumas and trials and tribulations, everything that happens to us that takes us in the direction of losing ourselves. It's it's so, so nice to hear um, how far you've come and how far you're continuing to go. So my friendship with you is lifelong. That's the way I want to keep it. I, you know, I hope so too, man. I mean, I'm super grateful just to be able to show up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and that's why I said, like if my car, you know, didn't work, like I, 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 I take a lift down here, man. Cause then I get Hilton points. But you know, at the end of the day, it's like, I said, I was going to be there. You, you know what that, I mean? Man. And, I, and I will, I will try to be there. I took a 12 step call on the, on the entire right, right way down here, you know, talking to a guy that's thinking about moving to LA who is starting to dabble into meetings and I, and he's a friend's brother. And mm -hmm. I just, I've never, I met him once. I've met him once years ago. And I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll take your call. I got an hour on the car. Like, let me see what's up. You I love know? that. You know, but that's what we're taught. And that's hopefully what, why this thing works and we keep it going because it's accountability, whether it be through sponsorship or, or just, you know, a casual 12 step call. It's like, you know, this is why this thing works. And Absolutely. It runs on spirit. It's awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming out today. You don't want to keep talking, man. I, I, I keep going, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, it was a lot of content. It was really good, powerful, very powerful. Um, just to hear you talk about your recovery, it's always good to catch up with you. And always. you and I have a lot more to catch up when we when we see each other in person. So we'll make that happen. I love to, man. All right. Um, so this was the Peggy's Recovery Corner podcast. My guest today was Sean O'Grady. We will be coming back here this uh, next Thursday to uh, interview a guy named Michaelis that just wrote a book, Spiritual Revolution. Love you all very much. Thank you for being on the podcast today, my friend. And thank you for tuning in if you were here live. Is there any questions or anything that came up? I have one comment from Courtney Nicole. She said, Ray of Hope. Uh, Ray of Hope. Ray oh, of I love that. Hope. Thank you. Well, are we still live? Uh, yeah, we are. But let me shut it out real quick. Okay. Thank you all. We love you. Bye-bye.